Well, welcome to Sarah and Tech. I'm Sarah, and today I'm going to be interviewing Mr. Nathan Bott. Is that, did I say that correct? Nathan. Nathan Bott. Bott. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Who is a senior solutions architect, correct? That's right. For the company Red Hat. Red Hat software. And so um, every time someone says Red Hat, I think of like Linux and stuff right. like that. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I'm that's, a data that's, scientist. That's, that's, yeah, data scientist, <laughs> right. We're, we're known for being uh, kind of the, you know, probably the largest open source software and services company in the world. So we kind of take open source software and productize it and, and allow our customers to subscribe to it. I mean, I've had access to like a Linux machine since right? I was about 10. Because yeah. my dad was like, this is open source. You need to learn how to use it. So I, I definitely have been familiarized with it from a young age. I'm not sure many people get that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. And do the same thing for my children. It's like, you know, learn Linux and you'll be fine. <laughs> if you can learn Linux, you can do Windows and Mac. Not a big deal. Right, right. <laughs> so why don't we start out with you were born? And now you're a senior solutions architect. Oh, when yeah. did you, you know, discover your passion for technology? Kind of by accident. So, I mean, you know, if you take out the formative years in high school, I, I found myself in college, or, or, you know, 1990, 91, and I was in school for pre-law and history, you know, for history and poli-sci. And I realized about my third year in that, you know, I didn't want to become a lawyer because there seemed to be a lot of lawyers and all the people I knew that were going to law school seemed pretty miserable. So I kind of stopped what I was doing, and um, I joined the Navy. So wow, I, I, like, so I, I, that was a pivot. Right, exactly. And not only did I join the Navy, I, uh, I was able to test out and kind of always had a science background. My father is a chemist and biology uh, and biologist, so I always had science in my house. But, um, but I, I guess I had a, 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 you know, a pretty high acuity for chemistry and, and physics and math. So I took, tested out and got into the Naval Nuclear Program and, and kind of went head in vocationally into uh, naval nuclear p power and power school and went through electronics technicians and uh, school and and mechanical and electrical and we became a reactor operator of all things so by the time i was 22 i was qualified on two different reactor systems one on a sub and one in an aircraft carrier and um, so i liked engineering so um kind of you know went through that for six years and got out and thought i was going to go into commercial nuclear power went back to school uh, at Old Dominion, doing like you know engineering and engineering te technology and management, and but um, came out and decided not to do it because I didn't want to work in commercial nuclear power. <laughs> when I realized what they did, it was, it was you know it, you know it's it's a great industry I think in a lot of different ways, especially now in the revival of it. But it's 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 pretty tough work in, in terms of you know working rotating shifts mm -hmm. and, and, and just, and it wasn't really conducive to having, I got out of the Navy because it was going to have a family. So it didn't make sense. So I decided to, you know, I sent my resume and my background to uh, an IT web hosting company in Boca Raton, Florida. I was living down there at the time and uh, they brought me on as a, a inventory specialist. So uh, it was actually one of the first web hosting companies in the world called wow. Highway Technologies. It was located in a building where IBM was, where Bill Gates worked. Wow. When he was with IBM in, uh, in Boca Raton. And so I kind of learned f from the ground up uh, about web hosting. And at the time, they were using Linux mm -hmm. and also using, um, I guess it was IRIX, SGI, IRIX Origin 2000 boxes for their web hosting. So I kind of, like I said, from the ground up learned that and kind of progressed through being a systems administrator. But I wasn't always, I wasn't into technology directly, just to, just for the tech's sake. So I worked, uh, like I said, like a systems administrator and I'm working for Google in 2001, 2002. Wow. So I was one of the first two engineers on, uh, data center engineers on the East Coast to be hired for Google when they were still in, um, you know, co-located data centers. So... Uh, uh, myself and another gentleman, he just came out of college. We were, you know, managing clusters, big Linux clusters for Google, and um, which is pretty good. But it was, it was pretty arduous work. And you know, it, as you can imagine, it's just you know, 16, 18 hour days, five to six days a week, and it, it was pretty grueling. So I did that for a couple of years. And did uh, you have to do the on call thing? And yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, on call. Well, I mean, it was great because I mean, I mean, it's redundant, right? So you don't have to necessarily you know, fix it right away because there's so many other. You know, it, you know, there's so much redundancy built into a distributed system like they had back then and they have now. But um, but it, it, as it happens, like I said, I wasn't in for, for the tech itself. I was always into technology, see what it does for the rest of the world, the rest of the working world. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I ended up working for a hospital then and working as a systems analyst and and 
working with uh, with doctors and administrators and nurses and pharmacists, and spent a couple of years working for a small community hospital in Virginia doing uh, electronic medical record implementations, mm-hmm. doing health information management systems. And that's where I really liked it, where I had a, a way to take te- technology, uh, software, and infrastructure, and actually get it to be used by you know, you know, clinical staff or, or administrative and operational staff, and being that, that, that technical consultant. So kind of as a systems analyst and consultant, as well as then becoming a project manager, sort of managing a lot of projects and became a, a, a basically a healthcare project manager. And well, what do you think uh, really like led to your ability to project manage? Because not a lot of technical people can make that transition. And you've made how many career transitions? Like I you know, I know. It, it, and it, I'm it, like, <laughs> surprise ending. I'm actually ruler of the world. <laughs> no, well, I, I guess it's because I, I truly like working with people. I mean, there, there was a time where, you know, I think a lot of folks that are young that take on technology and they, and they kind of get all this knowledge. And they and they understand this stuff, and it's kind of cool. And sometimes you can get a little full of yourself, and you and 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 you're like, oh, they don't know this, they don't know. But I really enjoy like teaching, like why does this work this way? You know, why isn't it working? Right? Usually you're helping them fix a problem, and then you can you could try to educate them and get more comfortable with technology and computers, especially in healthcare at that time. So this is like 2005 through 2008 when you have a lot of folks that are going from standard paper processes to more you know computer driven workflow. And, and so I, I just loved working with people and seeing them could kind of adopt it and get more comfortable with it and start sharing their, you know, their, their knowledge of it and, and getting people to adopt technology. Because it's still actually an issue right now mm-hmm. in, 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 in a lot of businesses and enterprises. It's really adoption. You can sell all the best software in the world, all the best product and technology, but unless you get people to use it, it, it you know, it's kind of worthless. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's what I keep on doing. So, and I enjoy it. So... I guess I should carry on. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, after d- d- doing a project management um, and I r- ran a couple of projects, so I, I was with a small hospital system and then went to a larger hospital system and did larger projects. Um, I got pulled in to, in, into pre-sales. Mm-hmm. So um, in my infrastructure time, I learned a lot about storage and, and say in data center operations. Well, uh, EMC was looking for some pre-sale uh, solutions architects or systems engineers in the Washington DC area. and for their healthcare district. So I could take my healthcare experience and then my old infrastructure experience and try to get it to, to, to come together to help EMC, you know, uh, w- with their customers, um, you know, come up with better debt, data storage and data management solutions, especially when all the hospitals were kind of consolidating and there was a lot of infrastructure homogenization. So they needed a lot of help in that way. So I, I was working there for a while, but then, you know, being in DC for almost 13 years and being on the beltway and, and I wanted to move away from that. The and, traffic and move and move and move out. Uh, Did your west. kids go to the school system? There? No, we were, a, we were a little bit. We we're like in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, okay. so, so we're about sixty miles away. So I was commuting an hour in, and then I had the Beltway traffic. So oh uh, after doing that for many years, I was I was kind of tired of it, and then I wanted to move west. So. Uh, I wanted to go to Boise, so, so I picked Boise. This is in 2013. Before and it was cool, you picked Boise. Yes, yes. Well, th- I mean, honestly, because we really couldn't afford to live anywhere else in the West. <laughs> it was like the best place for a large family the to move to. The ultimate irony. Yes, yes, exactly. It is. It's lamentable now. Um, and, and, and St. Luke's actually hired me as a contractor, um, as a consultant project manager. It was a fixed-term contract. They had some projects they needed to get done and so I got moved out here and and worked for them for like the first year year and a half and then um, I went back to pre-sales because I, w- I could stay in Boise was done my projects and EMC hired me back to be a global solutions architect so you know but, you know working with EMC and then Dell and now I'm with Red Hat you know these are enterprise kind of infrastructure software uh, companies um, you know I, I'm doing what I do best I'm I'm working with people directly customers directly and in positioning product portfolios to enterprise strategies and then helping the sales guys meet their quotas. So, <laughs> so a lot of pre-sales work. Yes. What skills would you say are necessary for your role? Like if someone was like, I want to be exactly like you, what, it, would you, what would you tell them to go out and do? Like right, go talk right. to other people, learn to be social. You know what's great about pre-sales? And, 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 I've, and a lot of my colleagues would say this. It's like there's so many people from different areas. Like we have a guy that just came on our team. He came from law enforcement. Uh, you know, we, we have people who have been physicists or, you know, you name it, any kind of 
background. Like, they, you know, maybe, you know, the first part of their, their career, they've d- done the work and they've kind of satisfied what they were looking to do. They became successful in it, and then they want to do something else. And a lot of those people, just because of their their you know their experience and being able to solve problems in, in different domains and being personable, and you know they make they make great pre-sales architects because it's it's you know it's taking the business side of it, it's taking the technical side of it, it's taking how do you deliver it, how do you manage it, how do you support it, all into one ball, and then and being that that really primary you know contact person for the customer back to the company. So I'm really a customer's advocate is the way I look at it. And I, and I do my best for my customers so they get the best out of that product that they purchased mm-hmm. and, 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 and it's useful and it makes their job easier. And ultimately at the end of the day, that's what I want them to do is be able not to be so overburdened. Let's automate where we can. Let's bring in new technologies that make it a little bit more efficient for you to you know, sustain application you know, development and deployment and so forth. So having like a diverse skill set and being able to talk about the technology and how it's yes, applicable to exactly. them. Exactly. It's always about value proposition, right? I mean, it's not about it's a, the technology in itself is is fascinating, and there's so many things you can do, and you know, if, if that's your career path. But if we really want to go ahead and get to the, you know, and make it usable and valuable to CIOs and CTOs and and even business people, you know, not just IT but also business, and kind of they they see why they should invest in their people to adopt the technology that we're providing to make to make their business easier to run. So that's you know that's you know, that's that's my end game here is, um, you know, and the thing is you can't just you know you can't just settle on one technology area or domain. You have to know so much because there's so much that's going on so fast. I know that there's like, I hear that there is a need for project managers and a lot in that space. There's a lack of PMs and there's no like actual degree that gets you to be a PM because as you were saying, you have to have like a diverse background and be able to talk to mm-hmm. a lot of different levels of technical knowledge as well as like different domains and mm-hmm. verticals. And so, I mean, it's just a space where we need more people who are able to be in it. Um, mm-hmm. I know I've definitely been on projects where I was like, gosh, we could really use a PM and a lead data scientist isn't cutting it <laughs> as much as I try to. You you need someone that does that. Yeah, good, good facilitators. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say educators, uh, you know, even educators that may be taught English or you know, they're, they're, they're really good facilitators. They're good communicators. And that's what you really need is to be able to communicate and actually listen to what people are saying and, and, and then contextualize. I mean, where, where project manager skills came in handy in healthcare in particular was you would ha- talk to doctors, you would talk to nurses, you would talk to pharmacists, and they all had different incentives. They all mm-hmm. had different problems they were trying to solve, and they want, want to work together. And that was actually one of the most edifying things is to be able to get those stakeholders together and get them all on the same page and agree upon a path to a solution you know, that's using technology. And, you know, and if you're that kind of person that likes to see that type of collaboration and, and working together and, and have those aha moments, then, you know, that's, that's a great career for those folks. But, but, but a lot of times, you know, a lot of customers are dissatisfied for, and it could be, you know, you could have a great project, but this little 10% of it wasn't that great. That's going to be amplified. And, and sometimes you, you know, you have to kind of, you know, work through that. And again, that's, that's the other thing too, is objection handling. How do you handle objections? How do you convince a person that, you know, to see the other side of it and then also address the objection that they're, you know, they're bringing up. I mean, we all know that every software has some of some drawbacks yes, and yes, it has some strong, strong suits. And so um, working through that with the customer being like, yes, we know there are drawbacks within this specific area um, is always something that you just have to deal with. I know like different technology stacks, if you will, um, you know, some of them are better at real time, but then trying to put a machine learning algorithm in there, it doesn't always work as well. But like real time graphing is better in different environments and so on and so forth. Right. I guess I know data science speak a lot better than oh, yeah, than yeah. general computer science speak. <laughs> now that's, you know, in, in I mean, I, we, you know, we, with uh, Z Data, for instance, it was great to work with such a diverse set of, of technologists, right? You mm-hmm. had your DevOps folks, you had your developers, you had the data scientists, and then trying to, you know, kind of glean what they're really good at and, and what they can bring to the table for a certain project and, and deliver to value to the customer. You know, that, that I thought that was kind of interesting just to, you know, and, and, and it's sometimes it's a work. It's, it's always about trying to, um, you know, convert what one person's saying or doing and what it really means practically and, op- and, and operationalize it. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's always an interesting world to live in. Have you heard about the recent technology that GitHub came out with where you, 
like put in some plain text and then it starts building the code. Oh, wow. So it's actually you. like a deep learning you know, yeah. l little capability. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. made a few coders a little nervous around the collar because, you know, then anyone can just go in and be like, I would like a program that does this. Cool. Thanks. And oh, interesting. It runs so. off and it creates the code. Um, someone said it's really good at boilerplate. I haven't tried to use it yet. Um, but, you know, simplifying oh, the coders job, if you will. Right, right. Well, I mean, these things take time. I, I mean, I remember what was it, like geez, over 10 years ago, maybe 15, we're working with ambulatory care you know, providers that were trying to use, you know, Dragon naturally speaking to do, you know, you know, voice the text for their EMRs. And it was a mess. Right. And and, and even still, it's not perfect. Right. Because you still have accents. You still have, you know, you know, you know, context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember there was a whole, you know, push to get transcriptionists, you know, out of the hospital, out of the place, because it was all going to be done with either front end or, or back end speech recognition. And I'm sure to, to this day they still have transcriptions because, they, you know, it, you know, they're much more efficient than they were to say 10 or 15 years ago. But you still need that person there to help out. And and, and, and the technology is not always perfect. I mean, I recently became specialized in this area. I'm not a transcriptionist, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, but I'm very familiar with kind of like the transformers and the lambda nets that you use in that space okay. to do the voice to text. And then you have a transcriptor look at the script versus the actual audio file. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a company that does this better than a lot of places in Silicon Valley called Rev. Have you heard of them? No, no, no. They theory. can do it better than, you know, my little Google dot or Siri or Cortana, if oh, you will. And okay. so they're really good at voice to text. It's kind of mind boggling how good they right, are. Right, right. But we're still talking about it, you know, 50, when it was, there was still technology you know, <laughs> trying to be implemented, you know, mm -hmm. you know, practically, you know, that long ago. So it does take some time, but, it, but, but then that's enough time for people to find other, <laughs> other things to do. And, and, you know, I guess you could sit there and be afraid that you're going to lose your job or, you know, or, you know, figure out, okay, how, how can I be a, a value in an organization? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think a lot of organizations, so I've worked with healthcare, state, local, federal, and, and I always get the sense that those organizations are always trying to look to enable their, their employees and their folks. And, and though the automation's coming down the line, just try to, you know, you know, let's figure out how we can work around that and use it as, as, a, as a tool as it is, as opposed to being afraid of it. I mean, I know, I've heard doctors express that they are afraid of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. uh, because they also on their side google symptoms to say what you know is your ailment and so a computer possibly could take that space a lot better than they could and so um, I know someone who might be the head at a hospital system for artificial intelligence but he is not allowed to use the words artificial intelligence in describing yeah, what yeah. it does. Well, I, I, you know, in, in my career there, with what I just went through, I worked with a, a small startup called Allocade, um, and it was founded by a guy named Don Rosenthal. And he, he took a, some of his artificial intelligence algorithm basically from the Hubble telescope. So he was, he was, he was, wow. a, he was a focused on stochastic optimization and, and schedule repair. Mm -hmm. So he's able to do it with the Hubble telescope. So he ported it first to manufacturing for, for lean manufacturing, do schedule repair, and then he did it to healthcare, in particular, uh, radiology or procedure-based environments, to be able to, to go ahead and, and get higher utilization of investments in CTs and MRIs and X-rays and ultrasound and so forth. So I was kind of, you know, I worked for this small startup, um, you know, implementing it as a workflow consultant and project manager, and you know, some of the hospital systems were, you know, just embraced it and, and really worked well for children's hospitals because. Um, you know, they're, they're complex workflows because the children usually have to be sedated before they're put into an MRI. So you, do, you have the anesthesiologist, you got more nurses, you got the medical techs, you got, and then you have, you know, the, the radiologist that's, that's doing the procedure. Mm -hmm. And so this, this software worked really well in being able to manage all those pieces so then you can get the most efficient, uh, you know, procedure done. And, and so, but the thing was is that there, are, there were some folks, especially you know, on the nurse's side, some of the technologists were really, really apprehensive because it was it was considered AI enabled, you know, scheduling. And they thought, you know, they used to have big whiteboards and they'd have their outpatient schedule, inpatient schedule, you know, what was going on and what what, what was down, what was up. And we, and, and we were able to do this with this application called OnQ. 
And I, it was fantastic. A lot of doctors loved it because they just saw the, the value of it and being able, because then you could figure out whether or not you needed to spend more capital getting another CT or could you send them across the street because we acquired this facility and they got extra, they got extra CTs that we can use and, and get them over and also get the backlog because everyone complains about how long it takes to, to get the radiology procedure done. So it was great. But again, in, you know, this, like, you know, this is like 10 years ago, there was so much apprehension against the word artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it'll, it'll keep on, I think going that way until like everybody's either not employed anymore <laughs> or, or embrace it as their own tool, right? I mean, computer science has been around since 1970. I don't think it's going away just no, because not. someone, you know, made a, a text to code and now websites, it's just text and then a website exists and right. these things are going to be easier. And then your time, right, programmers' exactly. times can be spent actually doing fun and interesting problems right. rather than designing another website or right. doing something unique in a website environment. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned something um, while we were speaking earlier about how you never had access to video games. And so you felt oh. like an outsider <laughs> in the That's right. computer I, 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 science I'm, culture or I'm the IT. Very, I was a very unlikely technologist. This is where I really am, uh, you know, in, ter in terms of uh, of how I of how I see myself because I grew up without any you know you know we had the one TV with the three channels I, I grew up in the 80s but I was like out in the in the boons of, of Pennsylvania and and I never had video games really or even cable so I in order for me to get you know any any kind of like say entertainment that way I have to go to like a, a relative's house a cousin's house and play it but I really didn't play video games until I was probably you know, first or second year in college. And I wasn't even, I don't think I even used a PC until, I used a PC while I was in the Navy because I was, I was injured. So I, I played a lot of sports when I was a kid. I fished a lot. It was like, you know, I was outside a lot, um, you know, a, a lot of boring summers, you know, figure out how to, how to, uh, how to entertain myself um, was, you know, incentives to, you know, save up money and buy a bike so I could, you know, ride my bike to my friend's house. But, um, but it, was, it wasn't really until I was in my mid to late 20s that I started anything with IT. So I would say, I, I think my wife was the one who set up her Packard Bell that she had from college and I was learning Microsoft Windows then. But my, actually my first operating system I, I did learn was, was Linux because I was working on a DNS project at this Highway Technologies that then became Vario. And I were rebuilding or homogenizing a whole bunch of DNSs on Bind. And that's that's kind of how I, I learned it. But it wasn't, I was probably what, 27? 28 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nothing t technical growing up at all. So I, and, 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 and I can tell, I could hear the, all the, all the old timers talking about all these different chip architectures in different mainframes or different, you know, you know, spark systems. And I kind of know the history of it, of course. And, and I understand at a theoretical level what the differences are, are, but I never actually lived it in a sense of working on it. So, you know, and, and, and that's the, uh, so I always appreciate those guys that do it, but I said, I was just the guy who went fishing and threw a rubber baseball against the wall and caught it. <laughs> well, I mean, like, that's really interesting that you haven't or didn't have access to, like, a computer growing up, but you're still terribly interested in technology and you use it regularly in your day-to-day -day life now. Most people in that setting probably wouldn't have taken to technology. I, I know people my age that don't like computers, even though they are forced to work with it, so it's... Very yeah. impressive, actually. Oh. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, thanks, thanks. I'm trying yeah. to give you a compliment. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is, it is. Um, I, I guess I'm, I, I'm genuinely interested in, in understanding how work and you know, and the engineers that we work with, you know, that I worked with at, at Atusi Data, that I work with Red Hat with Dell EMC, just fascinating, just the, the level of technical, you know, um, you know, abilities they have and be able to solve problems at that. So I always have appreciation for that. But I, I mean, I just like science and technology in general. So especially when, when you get to merge them together. So the folks that are doing, you know, the stuff in bio, you know, and, uh, you know, biotech and, and things like that are, is just fascinating. Have you heard about how they can take computer programming and sequence it into DNA? No, I. Mm -hmm. They uh, can. Okay. They can synthetically uh, do it with a 3D printer so they can create DNA. Um, based on um, oh, okay yeah okay and so then the question becomes are uh, are we just computer programs walking around waiting to right. you know be deconstructed <laughs> into to some program here let me give your DNA you have the uh, perfect program to organize the inventory if you right will. right right oh that's interesting yeah I imagine that's satisfying a lot of the theorists out there that, that think we are just a, uh, a simulation of sorts 
I mean, I guess you could look at that. Then becomes the question is, do you think you have a choice and can change your outcome or everything's predefined? Yeah, that's the, that's the free will discussion now, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah. It's, it, it is an interesting discussion because um, I, I, I think I tend to be more on the, 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 the free will compatibilist kind of. I can understand where there's some things that we, you know, we can't control and we, we do without our, our known cognition of it. And then there's obviously things that we do that we know we're doing. So, but then again, you know, <laughs> this simple uh, technologist trying to, you know, fix, uh, you know, enterprise problems. I mean, there's even like a genetic marker that will um, associate with whether or not you're the type of person to tr- like move more than 20 miles away from like where you grew up. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised about, you know, since some of that stuff, because you, you, people do have those inclinations. I mean, that's a, you know, it's, that's an interesting thought because my, my wife is Irish, right? But her, her father is like the only person in his, her family that ever left like the farm in Ireland. So they all still live there, like, and they all live like 20 miles away. Or I think it's 20 kilometers, actually, <laughs> from, switch units. from this farm in, <laughs> in Ireland. And her, and it's it's just amazing that it, that that's a lot of of that family. This, the, the, but but her father was the one out of six that decided to come to America, and uh, and we were like the one of the first Americans, uh, you know, for them to meet when we went back. So it was it was pretty it was pretty cool. <laughs> How many times have you gone back to meet her family? Just once. So, um, you know, it, 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 she actually grew up in London, but oh, wow. but um, it, it moved from Ireland to, to, to London and then came over to the United States when she was a teenager. But we, we were supposed to go back last year in 2020. Oh, okay, no. So, so we're probably going to go back next summer. So that's the we're, we're, we're waiting to see how this thing pans out. The Delta variant. The- yes. Uh, the echo variant. I'm, I'm sure we'll keep going until yes, we get we to the omega. <laughs> At this rate, right? Yeah. So it'll it'll be interesting. Hopefully, we can get back there and, and, and visit. But like I said, I, w- I always found that fascinating. Actually, a lot of folks that I grew up with too in Pennsylvania, they stayed very close to to, to where they grew up. But you know, so there's some of us that that leave and, and go explore the world. I guess. I mean, I also did that. I'm nowhere near where I grew up. So. Yeah. I, that's why I, I guess I brought it up because I was trying to genetically like target you for your for your marker. <laughs> I'm I'm actually from Detroit, Michigan. You can tell yes. the way that I look. Right, right. Very rugged. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean that's uh, you know a, a, a hotbed of engineers because because of the automotive industry. So I mean there's a, a lot of brilliant engineers and, and, and autom- automotive folks there. So I mean that's a there's a you know guy I know in Micron. He's a PhD and does process engineering and chemist. And you know his he, I think he grew up outside of Detroit and in Michigan. And his father was in the automotive industry, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, my my grandpa, but yeah, 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 yeah. has some of the best public schools in the United States. Actually. Yeah, I would imagine so. Right. Even the economy still is kind of not that yeah, great yet. Yeah. It hasn't bounced back. What I loved about Michigan is that you know living in Virginia, there's a lot of folks that from Michigan that have moved. I guess they get tired of the weather. <laughs> the, the gray skies and the snow, but a lot of them came from farms and they were just like solid folks. I mean, in terms of being able to do anything, I mean, it went from, you know, where they were doing computer programming and then they're also building tables and barns. <laughs> so, and I was just like, I was always so impressed and just like almost jealous, like, man, they have so Cause you know, it was just like, they had to do it. They weren't going to buy it. They weren't shipping it from Amazon. They were actually doing it themselves. And it was, it was pretty astounding to see, Folks like that, and I, 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 you know, see that a lot of Pennsylvania, but also Michigan. I mean, everyone says like I'm a handy woman because yeah. I just like whip out like a tool bag and start fixing things. I love doing DIY projects in the house. Right, right. And I'm like, I also like programming, but you know, let's paint this wall. <laughs> right, right. That's you know, that, I think I think that's a great character <laughs> of, of of kind of the the uh, down to earth and, and salt of the earth uh, folks from the Midwest. Yeah, that's, so. I guess that is a Midwest. Even it's considered East. Eastern time zone. Yeah. So technically, in some ways, they behave, I guess, like East Coasters. Supposedly, okay. someone said someone at some point. I see. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, um, what is some life advice that you think would stand the test of time or something that you would want to tell your grandkids that you don't have yet? I do have a grandkid. Oh, sorry. That's right. Yeah, you do have. <laughs> sorry. What is some life advice you do want to tell your grandkids? Um. No, or or my kids. Yeah, I mean that's 
It's a good question. I one thing that I realize or I see a lot is this um, you know, don't don't necessarily get trapped by the pursuit of knowledge in itself. A lot of knowledge is kind of inert and, and it's kind of cool to find out a lot of information. Like everybody's a Wikipedia expert, right? You know, <laughs> all kinds of information about and and quoting this and, and knowing this. But what I would say is focus on you know, methodology and processes and tools to solve problems. Um, you know, and you know, because you know everything that we, you and I are doing today will not be done uh, 20 years from now. There's going to be something new, different, totally something we, we, we may not we'll never be able to anticipate. And you want to be able to be, you know, you want your kids to be able to do that. So not to get hunkered down in one thing and just know it. I mean, it's good, I, you know, I, I think it's good to, you know, like you want to learn a foreign language, you know, probably pick up if you're going to work in technology, pick up some language and understand the structure and framework mm -hmm. of programming and, and understanding syntax and, and logic and things like that. And then, of course, you know, math, but, but also other things, just, you know, you know, finding patterns in, in different domains that you can apply when you're trying to solve problems. I think that's something I would tell tell my kids. And, um, you know, I'd probably tell them to probably be a little bit more focused than I am <laughs> and not get bored too easily. But, you know, it, it's worked to my advantage. I don't know whether it worked to my, my, my father laments. My father was a food scientist and worked for a same company for like 30 years and always gives me grief because, you know, it's like, why are you doing this different? Like, why did you change? And, so this is the way you know I am, and I think it's the way the world is. And I mean, I I think it's a very common thing to not be loyal to one employer anymore for thirty years. That's a, a very common thing, right? Nowadays, exactly. exactly. Um, I honestly can't say I know anyone that has left college and stayed at the whole the same company since college. And I graduated, you know, a little bit more than a decade ago. I it's just that's the way it is. It doesn't pay to be loyal to an employer anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's refreshing about Red Hat. There's a lot of folks that have been there for a long time, oh, so wow. since the beginning, because, you know, it, 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 once it became a company in, in the 1990s. So my current manager's been there for 16 years. Oh, wow. A lot of the leadership. I saw that at Dell as well. Not so you know, you know, kind of the, I would say, we'll say legacy without getting legacy, you know, technology companies. Um, there's a lot of folks that have been there for a long time, and it's, I think it's good to have those folks you know, for that institutional knowledge and, and continuity with the customers in particular. But, uh, but you do see as, you know, as, as um, you know, employees are get younger and younger, they are going through. And, and I used to say it was more project-based. It was always about, you know, you know, solving a problem or working on a project and getting it done and going to the next one. And um, so, and I think it's great to have to do that when you're young, to be able to go from one thing to another, try to solve different problems, work with different people. I think that actually helps out in terms of uh, encountering the change that's always going to be there. Um, you know, if you're working with the same people and the same thing over and over again, there probably is going to be a complacency that, that sets in and that you, can catch you off guard when things do change. So, and I mean, change is inevitable. It, it will yeah, happen. Yeah, it's supposed, to, yeah it, it, it's supposed to happen, really. I mean, I can't, you know, that's, that's, where, that's where we all are. And, and, and navigating that and figuring out a path, you know, for, you know, for your own career path, uh, helping out other people, helping out your customers navigate that as well. So, have you ever mentored anyone? Um, I would say I would say yes. You know, um, you know, I, I've mentored folks. Uh, you know, it, 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 I was thinking about that question because I've never had a mentor, like you know, a long-term mentor. I've never been a long-term mentor, but I've been on teams where we were cross-functional, and and I thought about this. I, w w First hospital I worked with, I worked on a clinical systems analyst team. So half of us were like IT technologists, but the other half were like nurses. So, you know, I, I worked for a nurse who was a cardiology nurse. And then one of my colleagues was a, um, was a, 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 a OBGYN nurse and she, she worked in uh, labor and delivery. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, med search. Uh, so you had, so what was great was we kind of mentored each other and in, 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 in understanding how to deliver technology to clinical operations. And I always thought that, you know, that, that particular manager, she, I mean, she was just a great mentor and, and, you know, it was like, to me, that was like actually my first real manager. Like, and she knew how to manage, not just, you know, us IT people, but also, you know, doctors and other nurses and administrators. So she had a gravitas to her. And, and, I, and I always took that, is that, you know, she, she was very, before she made a decision, she went through her paces to make sure it was the right decision. 
it was the right for decision for all the stakeholders. So we always kind of mentored each other, you know, and then from a technology side, we taught the nurses a lot of things about systems thinking. Because, you know, you think in nursing and in healthcare, there's, 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 there's biology systems thinking, and then there's systems thinking, and they're quite different when you're talking about, you know, sustaining operations and managing uh, those electronic systems that doctors and clinicians use. So I always thought that, and then, so, but in, in terms of mentoring other folks, it's, you know, it's always been, you know, senior, junior level. As a project manager, you do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of part and parcel of the position. I mean, I definitely have learned a lot from the project managers that I've been with, and they started to teach me some project management. So that's always fun to do, right, learn about right. other people's roles. Yeah, so that's, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I've heard of, and I have a mentor right now actually within Red Hat, and he's great. So he's kind of helping me navigate and, and, and find the information that I need as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that's always uh, challenging when you're newer at a company that has a lot of legacy knowledge. Yes, yes. And Who do you go to to ask this question right, to yes. get this thing to right. to go to the next step? And everybody needs that. So yes. I think that's a, and I think it's very, very important for, especially with the amount of change of people that are influxed, that you, see, you have some continuity there. Mm -hmm. So, Is there anyone that you, like, really follow online for to keep up to date? Um, <sighs> well, you know, I, I, I totally got off Twitter last year. And, and so I don't, like, follow, like, anybody anymore. Um, so... You know, it, it's I I do follow some some blogs I would say, uh, but it's I, I like I said I'm more interested. So I, I've always been interested in kind of uh, Timothy O'Reilly what he does. I don't know if you if you know Tim O'Reilly, you know the O'Reilly books. I mean, I've heard of the O'Reilly books. Yes, I think yes. If you're in tech and you haven't heard of yes, the O'Reilly yes. books, you're in so trouble. So actually, I, I I know his two of his brothers. I, I I used to live right by them in Virginia. Oh wow. So and he's he's out of California. So I, and I always liked what he did in terms of. Uh, knowledge, you know, sharing. I know so he's always been an advocate of open source, and you know his, his books kind of speak to that and, and sharing of knowledge. And so he's got a lot of good staff that write about technology trends. So I, I always I, I kind of follow that that group. I'll say, um, you know, so and just like anything else, there's no one in particular that I follow. I think on Twitter, I probably follow comedians more. <laughs> It's to get a good laugh. <laughs> I mean, especially with the last year and a half that right, everyone has right. had, we all just need yes. a good laugh. I, I just didn't want the, uh, you know, it, you know, it, politics seems to steep into everything. So, um, but I did, you know, I, I guess uh, there's one like political geo guy. I think his name is Ian Bremmer. He's kind of interesting. Talks about global security um, and and you know not only physical security but also cybersecurity. I thought was interesting. Um, and and it affects the globalization and economic homogenization and and it, what, how that fed into you know the last couple of years. So that was one guy I, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, but usually I kind of you know I'll, I'll read I, I like you know podcasts. So I, you know I, I like science podcasts as well as sports podcasts. So. <laughs> Do you have any like what's your favorite or what's some of the ones you listen to? Probably Sean Carroll, Mindscape. I think I think he's got the best one out there. He's he's like one of the best interviewers, and he's got such a variety of folks that that uh, you know he, he interviews, and you know across all domains of science and technology. So I really appreciate what he's done. He's a great science communicator. So um, and and he's you know I think pretty important when you want to learn about um, you know you know. He, he, he does both philosophy and, and actual, you know, pure physics as well as other domains of science. So I enjoy him. That's very cool. I'll have to check him out. Yes, yes. I, I usually do tell people about him and say, you know, he's, he's worth a listen to. And he's like, um, he's like really a cosmologist out of uh, uh, Cal Poly Tech. But probably, you know, if you haven't heard of him, you know, he's one of the probably the best science communicators out there. Well, sounds like it. Yeah. Especially if you're speaking that well of him. <laughs> So, do you have a favorite programming language, or are you just like so? Do do you program anymore? So, I guess so, I, so I, I do not program. I, I, that was one of the things um, when I first got in IT. I was trying to figure. I, I didn't realize there were so many paths you could follow. So you know, you had the kind of traditional systems admin, data center technician, uh, the networking guy, a programmer, and so I, I, when I worked for Highway Technologies Vario, I went to one, or like one of the you know, lead programmers. I think his name was Matthew. And he, and I asked him, I said, so I want to learn, you know, I want to learn about IT, I want to learn about application development. You 
know, if you had any suggestion, what would you do? Like what school, which pro courses? And of course, you know, him being in that position, he's been like programming since he was like 10 or 12. And he wrote a program and sold it with his grandfather, who was like a real estate agent. And I was just like, oh, okay, so I'm really behind the ball. I'm like, I'm like he's been doing it since he was 12. He's probably in his mid 20s, you know, about the same age I was. I was a little older than him. I was like, okay. I see. So maybe that's not my place to be. <laughs> and, you know, fast forward after learning, you know, compute and storage and networking as a system admin. And, um, and I was, I was working on a master's degree. Um, and, you know, and I had to take, um, you know, program. So I took you know, Java and, and, and data structures and uh, kind of persevered through those, we'll say. And not that it, I couldn't do it and, and I did do it, but I mean, just, it just was not something that I fully enjoyed uh, as, uh, you know, it took a lot of time, you know, it's tedious. So I, I always have an appreciation for folks that had like, like I said about focus, who could focus for many hours on one particular problem and, and going through. Um, so I did it and, you know, I passed and I said, you know what, I'm glad I did this. <laughs> I can move on to other things. But I, I, but my wife laughs at me because I still have my Java book, which was, you know, it was an Oracle book. But I also do have a um, um, a Python, you know, basically a Python book, and I got all these courses that I sometimes take around, you know, Python and data science because sometimes I'm reading or I'm listening to a customer and, it, and concepts come up, and I go, well, I'm gonna, I, I want to know what that actually means, so I can go. I, I may not apply it, but at least it, it provides me context, and and I always think it's 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 helpful to have that framework. Like like I said, you know, we all had to take Spanish or or some other foreign language high school we probably should do it so then at least you have a, a good model in your mind of what, what 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 these things are and how they how they're applied and you know so you're not you're kind of fumbling with the concepts or at least like you know the structure of spanish is different than that of english and that was really revolutionizing to me it was like you don't just literally translate the word word for word it's the same like formula of hi my name is like it's yeah. not the exact way that it works in other languages. They right. order the sentences different. And right, so, right. I mean, even just at that granular of a level, um, as someone who's working in that space, it's just, you know, right. having I, an I idea of imagine. how it works. Right, right. So you know, that, it's actually doubly complicated for you because you got language processing and then, <laughs> you know, you're actually software development languages. And then, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, but I was just liking um, programming languages to like the actual human language yes, yeah. as well. So right, right. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I took a different path to get there, and I've never actually taken a programming class. Yeah. Um, so I can totally relate to you, and I've never intended to be a programmer. I just liked math, and this has all just been a mass producer or mass pursuit of math. And uh, somehow so, so I've so ended up here. So, what are the key here. principles of math that you're using within? I mean, I, I mean, I understand. I've, the math. I've kind of gotten lost along the way. You know, okay. you go down this little path. You're like, I love math, and then uh, I don't derive anything anymore, or integrate anything anymore. <laughs> but you know, technically, at the root of a linear regression, you are yes doing. You know, you have to optimize for the coefficients, right, right, and right, understanding that space. But um, yeah, this has just been a. I, I got uh, sidetracked from my original pursuit of math, and now I'm somehow programming. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's, I mean, I mean, uh, with, with data science, because there's, you know, I, I think like data science, there's a lot of folks from different backgrounds that kind of find their way into that area, because data science, I mean, imagine having specific domain knowledge is so important to be able to contextualize the data in which you're trying to, you know, you know glean those insights from. So, like... You know, that's the, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we work together with predictive maintenance. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, last summer while I was there, I, I, I took a course on smart manufacturing from MIT. They have these great professional education courses. And it was really applying, you know, art, you know machine learning mm -hmm. and, and going through, you know, ma manufacturing, uh, smart manufacturing, you know, with IoT and sensors and doing math and actually taking almost like a, you know, very basic 3D printer, extruder, and then, and then coming up, up with a way to model it, so to make a, almost a digital twin, you know, and and being able to predict, you know, based upon the speed of a, you know, a, of the spooler, you know, how thin or thick is the is the is the fiber going to be, and things like that. So it was actually a nice application, and that was that's what I mean is that, 
is that sometimes you get into areas, and I'm a, like I said, I'm a technologist, as a project manager, but I really want to know what are ways to approach the problem. And, you know, I may have that Python book, but there's so much stuff, whether it's in Udemy or MIT or, you know, you know edX or whatever, you can learn so much on the fly that, I mean, really, I mean, the world is ours and compared to what it was even when I was in college. It's, it is astounding. So, you know. But there are some places that still, they want that degree. They want the yeah, letters yeah. at the end of their name, even though most of the knowledge is very free and, you know, they give you a little Udemy or whatever certification. Yeah. And you might even know more than, a, like, practical knowledge than a PhD, but they still they still want that university stamp on your forehead. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine so. I mean, you know, that's... I, I, you know, there's, I guess, a bit of tribalism there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I knew someone who would only hire U of I graduates, and they wouldn't hire BSU graduates. And oh, I, really? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, no matter how, uh, you know, polished the BSU graduate was, they wouldn't hire them over a U of I graduate. And I was okay. like, oh. I, I didn't know people were actually like that. I thought that was just, you know, a myth. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, people have their biases and, and their thoughts of... And, I, you know, probably is more the case, you know, I, I don't know about now, but obviously you're your example, but I don't see it as much, at least, at least, at least it hasn't affected me as much. But then again, I mean, and, you know, people who work at certain companies, they can kind of get access to other companies because they have other people there. Mm-hmm. So unless you didn't work, unless, unless you've worked in, you know, a certain industry with a certain company, a certain group, you may not be led into that other company. So, it, you know, it's, it's there at different levels, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm, Kind of surprised sometimes the, the stuff I run into, into right. but you know it's whatever it's life. Yeah, it is. It's the, the things you gotta get. You figure out how to navigate around and, and, and kind of prove your worth. Other than now, and, and I think in a lot of cases those degrees are, are pretty valuable and, and well worth it. But you know, but then other folks don't have those opportunities. Whether it's life circumstances or money, and that's kind of how I was. I mean, I, I mean, it's, I, I'm you know autodidact. Never, you know, got formally educated in IT. Everything's been self-taught, or I take or I take the little classes. Um, but I think the, the the methodologies and the problem-solving approaches that engineering teaches you generally has been has been very helpful. I mean, learning the scientific method in general probably was very helpful, yeah, right, like right, applying right, it constantly right, exactly. to what you're doing. Exactly, it's been helpful. So I also like the you know the the, the engineering management part part of it which was pretty important because, you know, you had the economics part of it and the statistics and, you know, and, and operational management and project management. Because, again, it's not just about the technologies itself. It's like, how do you make this useful? And I did, and, and you know, we talk about mentors. My engineering management instructor was this woman who had worked at NASA, and she, and she was at NASA for like 30 years, managed five different, um, you know, five different groups, you know, in all the different areas that NASA has, and I, and I forget what they are off the top of my head, of course, um, but she was absolutely brilliant. And she, she was so funny because she would say, you know, she'd get a, like a new recruit of, of, of engineers in. And, you know, and these are brilliant people, mostly men, right? And she would say they were so competitive because they've been competitive all their life. And she would say it would take, them six months, take her six months to basically break down all their bad habits. While keeping their engineering knowledge, right, and, and, and mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, aeronautic engineers, what have you, because they all had to work together. They all had to work together to solve problems, be able to support this, this space shuttle mission at the time. Mm-hmm. And but she said it took them six months because because they were so competitive that you couldn't get them to work together. And you know, and because they had their own domain biases, like the electrical engineers didn't think the computer scientists were good because they thought they were like all dropouts. And what? <laughs> no, and, what? You no, know, no, mind you, this is like you know, this is in the eighties and nineties that you know, computer she, scientists are dropouts. Yeah, right. No, it, 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 it's true. There's a lot of at, at the time. It may not be the case, but there was this notion that if you couldn't cut it in electrical engineering, even computer engineering, right? When you're when you're getting into high levels calculus, that that you would go ahead and say, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm you know, I'm going to go do computer science instead so it, it, it may not be the case now but this is you i know, mean but back then and then she you know so she would talk about you know, six months to get these folks broken down to to be able to work together and and she said that was actually it was very interesting that w- things that she had to do to get them to be able you know little projects for three of them and then get five of them so then they could you know understand each other's you know you know the trade-offs there's always the trade-offs across the different domains. So I, I, I thought that was actually, a, I mean, that was a great course that I took at Old Dominion University. 
and, uh, and it, it was it was very helpful, especially as a project manager when you have you know, you know, different disciplines. And I was I was working for healthcare at the time when I was going through that. So that reminds me of a personal story because I'm a data scientist, so I do math and I do science really well. And I wasn't such a computer scientist, uh-huh. so I was in a room full of programmers, and someone said something about packet speed. I was like, okay, can you explain a packet to me? And they all like turned their heads slowly and looked at me like, how do you know how to program? And I was like, <laughs> well, uh, I guess people could argue I don't, but uh, <laughs> I'm a data scientist. I know math. Do you know how to, you know, implement a random forest and do it correctly? Right, right. Probably not as well as I do. So we all have our strengths and weaknesses. But exactly. no, it's a, it's a very common thing I run up against. But I know most computers. Data scientists or computer scientists, so they're probably not experiencing those types of things right, of right. like asking stupid questions like what is a packet? <laughs> I know now, I promise guys. Right. right. That's that's true. I, I, I've been in those conversations. <laughs> Just like, please don't kill me. Thanks. Right. And then and then you can go into you know data storage, right? And they and the network guys don't know about like SCSI or, or Well, I mean, I don't sand, know about or SANDS SAN. or anything like that. So, you know, everybody's got their, you know, I think they're they're focused in in their in their, in their, their track. Mm-hmm. But it's it's great, you know, you know, I think she would take people out of their own groups and say, "Look, you're going to go work with the mechanical engineers and and you know, sink and swim." I mean, like figure it out. I think that is uh Everyone should experience some of that, that oh, like yeah, other definitely. people know a different chunk of the pie and it takes a bunch of chunks of the pie to make a whole right, one. Right. Well, that's the thing is, is it's integrated knowledge and, 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 and being able to take different disciplines. And that was what was great about the Navy that I, I don't think I would have experienced anywhere else is that, you know, though I was, a, you know, an electronics technician, right, it was really instrumentation and controls for the reactor plant. But I had to understand the mechanical systems. I had to understand the electrical systems. I, under, I had to understand the reactor physics. And it's actually the toughest part of actually getting qualified was they would give you integrated plant questions. So they would say, hey, what would happen if we turned off this particular pump for, uh, on the condensation loop uh, in plant two? What would be the effects of, of the whole sh- uh, on the whole ship as you're, as you're managing our reactor operator? And you got to go through kind of like, okay, what are my immediate actions? What do I expect in my readings for my from my gauges and, and readings and then how it react to that. And you're, and you know, cause you have to know the foundational, the, you know, the theory behind the electrical system, the mechanical system, the physics and, and of the reactor and what's, what's impacting that in terms of pressure and temperature and then bring it all together to be able to keep the reactor in a safe space. So if you take that, that, that methodology of learning systems and integrating it, then applying it in different disciplines. I mean, it, it's really, really helpful uh, no matter what you're doing. So, I've actually worked with nukes too. So. Yeah, you did at INL, yeah. right? Yeah, and so. uh, that's that's fascinating work what they're doing over there. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, it's those are I loved working with those customers because you get to work with the enterprise and the HPC folks, and they're doing a lot of great work in terms of building out uh, s- simulation of models of the new reactor designs. So. Yeah, and there's a lot of different styles of reactors. Ones where they even take the plutonium and like the um have like a, what do you call it, like a scheme where they move it, the uranium to the center and then they slowly move it out from the center. And so you end up recycling the yeah, uranium yeah. and capturing the electrons again right. or even encapsulating uh, the uranium inside of concrete balls. That way all you have to do is take the whole concrete ball well, out. Right, right. And so it's a lot less right, um, uh, a messy situation. Right, right. Uh, there's it's been messy in the past. <laughs> yeah, the only problem is is getting these like systems certified because they've been experimenting on them for. Yeah, there's how a, long? a lot of money now. I know that like New Scale out of Corvallis, you know, they're doing a lot of work at INL. Um, I think you know G Atachi, their their small modular reactor systems are, are are going through search. So it'll take a while, but you know it looks promising, and I know there's all, you know, a lot of excitement and a lot of investment in, in, into that area. Well, Gates has TerraPower, which is up in. Uh, up in Washington, and mm-hmm. uh, again, it, you know, they're going to more of the. What's interesting is they're taking the technology that had been tested and actually researched back in the sixties and seventies, like at Oak Ridge, mm-hmm. these molten salt reactor and, uh, and, and sodium and, reactors. Yeah, the sodium reactors, right? And and now they're and now they're you know re, kind of refashioning them uh, f- for usage, and then and then being they're smaller and they have the micro reactors. So I know there's a lot of thought of what the go to market for micro reactors are, especially when you think about how fragile our 
critical infrastructure is on the electrical grid. If you can oh, go yeah. ahead and get it more distributed and easier to solve, and then you have the other inputs from solar and other renewables, it's it's uh you know it's a pretty that could be a way just to reconstitute what what our electrical grid looks like in the future instead of being like Texas last last year. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's not even the first time that's happened in Texas. Like right. it happened 20 years ago. I mean, I remember looking at like an electrical grid when that was like a problem and I had to write about it in a new reg document and stuff like that. And being like, why is Texas by itself right. in its own grid that all the other states aren't? Um, or just talking about how fragile everything is. Uh, I've looked at a lot of the alternative energy options, and I always wonder why don't we go with geothermal? It's one of the few, like, there's nothing growing near it. We're not going to disturb anything, and it has a high energy output, whereas, like, solar has a drawback of, like, it creates toxic waste when you create it. Right, right. And when it's you decompose it. And, right? and as well as, like, even wind turbines, like, animals get freaked out. So not super cool, but not super bad. Right. And nuclear obviously has like nuclear waste. Yeah, there's a lot kind of bad. So I just very consistent and reliable. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, obviously, fossil fuels aren't that great. And yeah. I mean, I, I worked in that space for the federal government for yeah. over two years and thought about it a long time. And I was like, why don't we do more geothermal? And I mean, obviously, hydro plants disrupt fish and all that. So that's not super yeah, good, not yeah. super bad, but. Geothermal, nothing lives at a geothermal vent really other than like bacteria. No one's going to be too upset if we destroy bacteria. Right, I think, right. Maybe. No, it's a good question. Um, I, I, know I, I, I don't know enough about, I guess, the, the practicalities of actually getting it and in, in what it looks like from a, from a delivery standpoint. So it's, yeah. I, I mean, mean, like from a delivery the standpoint. Way that you're, the way like, that you're, you know, you're characterizing it should be a slam dunk. Well, I mean, I'm sure... It's not actually a slam dunk, but like, <laughs> I just don't see the drawbacks and I've like looked into it for quite some time and I don't understand other than the fact that we're not like over, we don't have a lot of geothermal vents would be the biggest problem. Yeah. But then Wyoming would be like the powerhouse with all the right, right. geothermal. So that's, so, so we start a company called Caldera Power. <laughs> <laughs> we take all the thermal vents over there in, on the Wyoming, Idaho border and, <laughs> and all the hot springs that, that, that run through. I mean, a between. Few people might get upset when you destroy the hot springs, I guess, because they like hanging what? out in the hot water. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, I think what, what the, the 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 Scandinavian countries would do well with that too, right? <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> Hawaii, yeah, Hawaii too, right? Yeah. I mean, you can put it at the bottom of the ocean; it's not really going to disrupt anyone. Like, yes, I guess there's there's yes. the tube worms at the bottom of the ocean, probably. Wouldn't right. Like it, I'm sure, there's advocates for tube worms. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, we're joking, but I'm sure there actually are. I'm sure, there are. <laughs> Okay, we've gotten a little off topic. Right, right, right. Uh, what would you say is your favorite technology stack? Are you just not allowed to pick? Uh, you know, I, I, I guess I, I, I am allowed to pick. But <laughs> do you want to tell I, I'll us? I'll keep the company, the company a lot. You know, I, I do think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of headway being made with, with Kubernetes and, you know, and, and what I see in, you know, Red Hat and, and OpenShift. So, um, you know, I, I would say that I, you know, when you say technology stack, are you referring to specific, like a programming language and database and, you know, and compute or, or um, you know, or a particular product? I mean, we're just trying to get insight into your mind. If you said, okay. Sarah, what's your favorite technology stack? I would say, well, well, so far I really like on-prem servers um, <laughs> and I like distributed databases. Uh, oh, I'm not okay. a big fan of Hadoop. But Greenplum yes. was good to me. Um, okay, and, I see. And implementing models in there was pretty easy and straightforward. Yeah. Well, I, I would say what's what I've seen personally from making you know making a big impact is a lot of the automation um, around you know whether it's it's Ansible. You can you know you've heard of Puppet and Chef and and now you know there's so much I think focus on automating as much as possible. Not it's not just the infrastructure and you know, and you know whether it's the hardware or the operating system, or or even some basic applications. But it's it's automating everything up from what's on prem, including the application, the app dev you know, pipeline, uh, to, to anything that's on, in cloud or on prem. So between you know what Red Hat offers in Ansible, or even you know you, you know you have the free bits out there with Ansible, and then you know in the in the HashiCorp's uh, Terraform, and it, you know. 
there's I see so much adoption going on, and so much work to go ahead and get that done. Because frankly, you know, a lot of my customers they, can, they you know they, they can't find enough people, and they and they they really are coming against hard stops. So on projects, uh, just like explain it to me. What does Terraform exactly do? Or or you know we'll, we'll say what Ansible does. Or, so, okay, so, what so, so Ansible is is a you know it's a platform that allows you to automate you know kind of the, your, your daily operational tasks so mm-hmm. whether that's you know, standing up a server and configuring it with networking and an operating system and, and and getting it running to actually put an application it could be you know you know deploying an application right that means you know having to go through a, 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 a devops pipeline and automating that and getting it deployed whether it's in you know, it could be for you know development process testing user acceptance, load testing, you can automate that. You can automate networking, right? right? So if you know that application has certain ports that need to be open and you need to secure it, you can automate that on the networking side. Uh, what you're seeing now is a lot of security operations. So you, you've heard of NOX, right? So network operation centers. You have, you know, now you have these security operators, or SOCs, that they have all this different, you know, firewalls and intrusion detection systems and in logging systems like Splunk or QRadar from IBM, and they need to take all this information and start correlating it, right? And so, and be able to make and, and, and automate decisions. So you can automate based upon you know all the all the, all the data that's coming in to go ahead and lock things down when they think there is an attack. So, but you know you could do it with one technology, but you know most places have a heterogeneous environment. So now you take as much, and so to be able to automate not only the collection of that, but but then you know responding to it is is becoming more and more important. So I think I mean, to me that's. It's um, you know, it's just taking off everywhere, and it's become one of those things that's imperative by all chief, you know, ch- you know chief executives, especially around security and around cybersecurity. Oh yeah, cybersecurity is terribly important nowadays, yes, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> so, and then you know, in Terraform is similar, but it, it kind of focuses more on being able to, to stand up infrastructure in the cloud and be able to you know, and, and automate deployments in the cloud. And so instead of using those native tools. Um, you could, you, so, and, and so both like the Ansible and the Terraform stacks, they're kind of, they're kind of complementary and they work really well together because ultimately, you know, you can get very granular on what you want to deploy. Um, and then, you know, and, and then what's nice about, especially Ansible is that whether you're using the open source version of it or the Red Hat subscriptions, you have so much content that's provided by the communities. So you have certified content from all the different, like 90 to 100 different uh, IT vendors, or you know, literally thousands, tens of thousands of people have contributed their own their own code to be able to get content together to be able to automate. So you could stand this stuff up really quickly, and um, that's one thing about Red Hat that's it's really eye opening is just how many folks are willing to contribute back to the work that they did to make the product better, to you know, to to, to help other help other technologists be able to, to manage their you know their, their IT infrastructure and, and environments and. Um, you know, and, and Red Hat really does live this kind of open source ethos and, and being transparent and, and, and being collaborative. You know, they're not, there's really nothing proprietary in their, in their nature. Mm-hmm. It's so, and, you know, and the subscription really is meant for, really just for support, knowledge management, engineering, and working with, you know, you know everyone's got like their favorite cloud provider or hardware vendor, you know, and so it's, it is, is pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing how they work and, 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 and do uh, you know, open up in a, in a way how they're doing business and, and, and how they're managing and implementing technology. I mean, I've been told since I was a little girl that Red Hat products and Linux are one of the most stable operating systems in the entire world, um, a lot more than the other guys. <laughs> so, I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if that's still yeah, very I mean, true but, but, because but, of all, it's open source and so right. everyone contributes. Right, right. And it's the culture around it. Right. And it's, and it, what's, what's interesting, though, is that you know, IBM acquired um, Red Hat almost two years ago, and, and, and you know, and everyone's kind of like, "Oh, IBM," you know, you know, it's, you know, but the, the, they really, really want to adopt, you know, Red Hat's ethos and incorporate where they can, whether it's in the products or whether it's with customers. So, and in most of my interactions with IBM folks, though we don't, you know, it's kind of like we're fairly autonomous, right? We work independently. We're, we're, we work with IBM, they pull us in when, when they can and, and, and when it's the best for the customer. But you, know, you can tell there is an enthusiasm from IBM to be able to take some of what's going on. And even Microsoft, for that matter. I mean, you know, we're, we're big partners with Microsoft. Again, another you know, well-known proprietary you know, technology company, but there, there is you know, so much partnering going on. So 
And I think they realize that you know, at the infrastructure level, you know, that's not, you know, it's, it's been commoditized for the most part. It's really getting the solutions out, the business solutions, the, the integrated solutions, not just the you know, under the cover stuff they're going to make money on at the end of the day. <laughs> so do you have any uh, closing thoughts that you'd like to share or recap on? Oh, I mean, you know, I, 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 I love my job. I, I love being able, I mean, I've, I love working with the customers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I miss working with Department of Energy customers and the scientific and research. I love to work with the healthcare customers. And now I work with state and local and education customers. And, um, you know, you, you see them day in and day out. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to, you know, they're, they're living their lives. They have, and the last thing you want them to do is be burdened with all these, you know, in, complex technology decisions and, and, and supporting it and maintaining it. Um, so I really enjoy kind of helping them out in that way. Um, you know, in, in, in a sense, being you know, truly a, a trusted advisor or, or, or consultative. You know, not just, you know, you know I, I'm not just some sales guy slinging some, some particular, you gotta buy these, you gotta buy that. Now, <laughs> I, I, obviously I'm paid to have an opinion, right? Yeah. Um, but, I, but I don't mind sharing what other things are, like, you know, you know like Terraform, for instance, which is, which is a great technology. and. You know, a lot of stuff that Microsoft and Azure is doing. I mean, so I, I, at the end of the day, I want my customer to be successful because I want them, you know, I want them to have a life as well, right? Because we do, we do uh, you know, live the work and not live, and, and, and not, and, I'm sorry, did I said it right? We, 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 are, we are working to live and not living to work. And yeah. so that's, I, I, you know, that's what I, I, I kind of want to see that in, in my customers as well as myself. Well, it sounds like you're very passionate and very skilled with all the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Congratulations, thanks, I think. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> and uh, thank you for coming on, Sarah and Tech, and, and yes, talking yes, for Yes, yes, it's a been an honor and, and a pleasure. Well, thanks. Sarah, <laughs> thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Sarah in Tech. Feel free to email me at sarah at sarahintech.net or follow me on Instagram at sarahintech. Hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs> <laughs>